Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. From Wall Street to the White House, this is The Larry Kudlow Show. So welcome, everybody. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is The Larry Kudlow Show. And we'll reset for you. You can listen to this show live streaming on the Internet. LarryKudlowShow.com, LarryKudlowShow.com. You can hear us around the country, throughout the globe, around the solar system, including the Milky Way, anything you want. And by the way, during the week, go to Fox Business Network, FBN, please. The name of the show is Kudlow, 4 to 5 p.m. every day, Monday through Friday. And if you can't, by chance, join us at 4 Monday through Friday on Fox Business Network. Why, just text your favorite nine-year-old, and she will show you how to DVR the show. So I want to talk a little bit about this meeting in San Francisco between President Biden and Chinese President Xi. They sat down a couple days ago, the Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation Conference, and had some, you know, topics, plain vanilla what I think of as Nothingheimer topics. Oh, somehow we're going to manage friendly economic competition. Or, yeah, we're going to talk about climate change. Ha, 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 China's climate change. Or maybe better military communications. You know, the Chinese defense minister wouldn't uh, call our secretary of defense back. Even talk about artificial intelligence, AI. Just a friendly sh uh, sit down. A couple of old timers, right? She... Jinping, who's been around for a long time, and Joe Biden, who's been around forever. Those are the topics. And you know what? I could scream. I mean, literally, I am screaming. This is the worst sit-down get-together during this wartime period that one could ever imagine. Who is Joe Biden kidding? Really? Climate change? Really? Let me tell you something, folks, about what climate change means to me right now. Climate change is China, through its oil purchases from Iran and from Russia, China is financing two wars against the United States. All right, that's my climate take. And Joe Biden doesn't have the courage or the backbone to lay that out. I mean, you can go through the numbers. You can absolutely go through the numbers. China is buying from Iran one and a half million barrels per day, about $70 a barrel. That is $37 billion that China is giving to the Iranian mullahs, who, of course, want to destroy Israel and want to destroy the United States as well. But there's more. China is buying 2.6 million barrels per day from Russia. 
at about the same price, $70 a barrel. That comes to $65 billion in fresh cash for Russia so they can slaughter Ukrainians and essentially operate against the interests of the United States and the West. So here we have Joe Biden worried about returning military calls. Joe Biden talking about some goofy thing called climate change. Meanwhile, Xi Jinping, no wonder Xi Jinping wants to come to you. It's an easy one. Biden's giving him a pass. He is waging war against the United States. China is financing two wars, Russia and Iran, against the United States and its allies. Now, that to me is absolutely incredible. This is, of course, damaging American security. This is Xi Jinping and China who want to become the dominant power in the world. They want to displace America. And these oil purchases are the way they're doing it. Now, of course, you know, the Bidens say, well, we're sanctioning Iran. They're not sanctioning Iran anymore. Everybody knows that. The oil has been flowing. They're up to three and a half million barrels a day. When Donald Trump left office, I think Iran was producing a couple of hundred thousand dollars a day. When Donald Trump left office, Iran was bankrupt. When Donald Trump left office, he left the legacy of having killed the top bad guy in Iran, the top terrorist, Soleimani. Iran never uttered a a peep, not a whimper, not a whisper. Why? Because they were broke. Why? Because they knew Trump was a strong guy who meant business. Joe Biden is a weak president. Everybody knows he doesn't mean business. He's not enforcing the sanctions. There's been no interdiction. There's been no impoundment or sink a ship or bomb an oil field. We've had now 60 attacks on American military assets by Iranian terrorist proxies. What have we done? Nothing. A few pinprick bombs. We should knock out an oil field or take out the command and control center in Iran. Take out a training center. 500. 500 Hamas terrorists were in a training center last September in Iran. Take it out. I mean, as far as all this other stuff, you know, can go back to climate change. Biden's love to talk about climate change. I saw climate czar John Kerry was part of this meeting. As far as the Green New Deal climate bunnies uh, inhabiting the Biden administration are concerned, I doubt if any of them have the guts to ask President Biden to ask she why he, she, is building 250 coal plants a year. I, I thought coal plants were anathema to the greenies. Uh, I guess not, but they won't ask him about that. I mean, just ask him in public. I mean, that's what they won't do. They won't surface this this story in public, what China is doing to the United States. Or here's another point. Why doesn't Joe Biden ask Xi Jinping, how come we still have, the United States still has a $350 billion, some odd, trade deficit with China? And that is because of Chinese unfair trading practices. China has never abided by the Trump phase one trade deal. China has never abided by the uh, intellectual uh, property theft clauses that we tried to fix in the Trump years or the forced transfer of technology 
or the purchase of key commodities. So we're still running about $350 billion. Why doesn't Biden ask China about that? When are they going to enforce the phase one trade deal? When are they going to stop their unfair trading practices, which are decimating middle-class America, decimating American manufacturing? What's, what's Biden done for this? Oh, wait a second. Wait a second. Solar panels. Oh, but they're all made in China. Uh, wait a second. Electric vehicle batteries. Oh, no, no. They're made in China. Uh, wait a second. Rare earth minerals. Well, they're all made in China because Biden won't let them be made here because Biden is waging war against fossil fuels or excavation of anything. So why don't we ask them? Because here's the thing. We're transferring $350 billion to China to purchase all these goods that make up our trade gap. What do you think China's doing with that stuff? Well, you can look around the world. They have this Belt and Road infrastructure plan that gets them into Africa and other places so they can upend American influence. They use some of that money to beef up their military. They use some of that money to make these advanced fighter jets, which are buzzing Taiwan. I think I saw 1,700 fighter jets buzz Taiwan in the past year. That's what they're doing with our money. We are giving them the money to finance terrorism and to finance a war against America. Here's the thing. Consider this. China is not a friendly competitor. China is an adversary. China is an enemy. Does Joe Biden understand that? I see no evidence that he does. And certainly nothing came out of that meeting in San Francisco. They're not a friendly competitor. They're not some, you know, capitalist pro-business ally that we might have some small disagreements with, but we can, we can work through it. They are our adversary. They are our principal adversary around the world. China wants to overturn America and American dominance, American democracy, and American values. That is what Xi Jinping is all about. By the way, lest I forget, China's in our hemisphere. I mean, we're throwing the Monroe Doctrine out now. That's several hundred years old. China's in Cuba. China's in Central America. China's in South America. What do you think they're doing? Overturning American influence, overturning American values, overturning democracy wherever it might spring up. Joe Biden hasn't lifted a finger to stop that. Joe Biden never says any of these things in public. Want to know why? Because Joe Biden's foreign policy, from top to bottom, is built on an architecture of appeasing our adversaries and enemies. There's no deterrence. There's no strong action to enforce America first diplomacy, no toughness, no peace through strength, no conviction. Joe Biden lacks moral clarity and conviction. That's the problem. And this foreign policy of Biden's, which is stretching from the failure in Afghanistan to Ukraine, now to Iran, it desperately trying to ignore the incredibly strong, fast-growing Chinese threat. They want to ignore China. 
This foreign policy of appeasement rather than deterrence has made the world a vastly, vastly more dangerous place. And I'll just add one last thought, folks. We need a strong president now during this wartime period. We need a strong, tough, America first president. His name is Trump, not Biden. And I'm Kudlow, and we'll take a break, and we'll be right back. This is The Larry Kudlow Show. From Wall Street to the White House, this is The Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. So let's talk about one of the most bizarre things that happened in the past week. All right, you had this fabulous, fabulous 300,000-strong march for Israel. Peaceful demonstrations uh, for the Jewish state of Israel for Jewish people, really, in my view, for Jewish people in Israel, outside of Israel, all around the world, for freedom-loving people everywhere around the world, and against the murderous, cutthroat, terrorist thugs, uh, you know, the worst we've seen since the Nazi Holocaust, and it was fabulous. Now, all these politicians spoke uh, at this, uh, at this uh, rally, all right, including uh, from New York— Democratic Senator Chuck Schumer, and he gave a strong defense of Israel, as he always does. Now, here's the issue. After Schumer gave that speech, he goes back into the Senate, whereupon he leads the Democrats against the $14 billion of foreign aid designated for Israel in a single vote. In a single shot, no complications. Don't couple it with Ukraine. Don't couple it with more bad open border policies on the southern border, which is helping to do so much damage to this country. Don't couple it with Taiwan. Just help Israel. Israel right now, the IDF, they're rolling. They have momentum. They've gone into Gaza City, infiltrating the tunnels, There's even talk of perhaps, perhaps, a hostage release. All right, this is good. Meanwhile, they need replenishments. They need ammunition. They need armaments. They need ordnance. They need to replace the Iron Dome. This is their defense. So does Chuck Schumer, senator from New York, speaker at this huge 300,000-person Israel rally. Does he help Israel get his money? No. He leads every Democrat in the Senate to vote against the $14 billion appropriated that would have been appropriated in a supplemental funding mechanism that would go to Israel, go to Israel right away. Israel needs the money yesterday, not three months from now, but yesterday. Why does he do that? Is that hypocrisy? Of course it is. I mean, he says he blames the new Speaker of the House who actually had the temerity, first of all, to separate the Israeli appropriation out, get it done as rapidly as possible, and have a pay for, right? We have budget deficit problems. Democrats don't care about budget deficit problems. The whole Biden-Democratic, Bidenomics idea is to just spend your keister off 
with the high inflation and high interest rates that have plagued everybody. But the point is, the new Speaker of the House wants a small, the IRS, which has gotten all these new agents, has not used them yet. Maybe go slower, okay? Wait a little bit and find $14 billion worth of the IRS appropriation, which I think was something like $80 billion or or more. I could be wrong. I think it was $80 billion uh, appropriation for the IRS. Why not take out $14 billion of that? You could replace it later if you think you really need it. No, 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 no. We can't have it. No pay-fors. Now, this dopey dope in the State Department comes out and says, well, you know, the United States never denies food and medicine to any country, which, first of all, is just so silly and phony we're in at war. But the fact of the matter is this money was never earmarked for food or medicine. This money was earmarked for utility bills, electricity bills, oil and gas bills. Okay, so in addition to China buying up uh, Iranian oil, now we'll release these assets so Iraq can buy more Iranian oil. I don't want Iraq to buy. I don't want Iraq to buy anything from Iran. I want Iran not to have the money. It's like the $6 billion that they tried to unfreeze a few weeks ago. There was a big outcry. It hasn't happened yet. I don't want to give them a wooden nickel. They are killers. They are at war with Israel. They are at war with the United States. They are at war with... Europe. But we know this. So let me get this right. Step back a second. What just happened in this past week? Well, through the offices of Joe Biden and Chuck Schumer, Israel didn't get its $14 billion. But for the good offices of Joe Biden and his State Department, they want Iran to get $10 billion. Folks, you think there's something wrong with that? Do you think I'm missing a little common sense? I thought we wanted to help Israel and hurt Iran. The Bidens and Schumer and the Democrats are saying, heck, let's help Iran and hold back on Israel. Final thought, footnote. It is now not likely that Israel will get its foreign supplemental replenishment for many, many weeks. That's what's going to happen. And this is our great friend and ally. And this was Chuck Schumer speaking to 300,000 at that wonderful pro-Israeli rally. You know, folks, the older I get, the harder and weirder all this stuff is. But there's got to be some big changes in the House and the Senate and the White House. Change is coming. I'm Kudlow. We'll be right back. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. From Wall Street to the White House, this is The Larry Kudlow Show. All right, folks, we welcome to the show a great dear friend of mine, Chris Ruddy. Christopher Ruddy is the CEO of the fabulous media company Newsmax. 
and it is an old and very dear friend, Chris Reddy. Uh, welcome to the show. And I wanted to talk. First of all, we're so pleased you could join us. I wanted to talk about this great column you wrote. Uh, it's one war and spreading. And you say Hamas's October seventh attack on Israel is not an isolated one, but part of a larger and growing war that started in the Ukraine almost two years ago, and you also linked this back to Afghanistan. So with that preamble, uh, tell us what you're thinking, please. Well, I'm thinking a lot, maybe too much, but um, the um, war that started in the Ukraine uh, in February of 2022, I think, has gone and morphed and metastasized into a war in the Middle East. Hmm. Uh, Russia's ally, Iran, has been behind the attacks. I talk to a lot of people in Israel. Uh, they tell me that Russia, they believe, was behind it as well. It's no surprise that it was um, the war started on October 7th, which also happens to be Putin's birthday. Hmm. And that fact was not lost in Russia and Ukraine. Putin, you know, go back to the to the first Ukraine uh, invasion back in February. Putin gave a televised address, and he's repeated those comments, uh, similar similar comments after that. The, the basically, and you can read the speech online. It's uh, just look up English speech for the broadcast in February. I think it was February 22nd. He basically says, look, this is not a war on Ukraine. Ukraine is just an outpost of the United States, NATO, and the West. Mm. And that all over the world, the United States has caused these problems and that Russia is now going to counter them. And then he says that essentially that it's a war on the West and that um, that societies uh, like America and and Europe are corrupt, um, both financially and morally. And he says they don't have a right to exist. And since then. We've seen, you know, there's a lot of evidence that he's been behind these coups in Africa with the Wagner Group in these French countries. Um, We know that uh, he's been backing this uprising in Kosovo with the ethnic Serbs. They're trying to cause trouble for NATO there. Um, He's allied with, uh, gotten very strong backing from China. And then we have Iran, which he is, they're bound on the hip. They've kept uh, Russia afloat. Um, and the drone and other supplies that Iran is giving them. Um, and now this attack is, is a benefit to, to Putin in a lot of ways. It draws a lot of attention away from Ukraine. Mm. It stretches American resources. And we saw the ga- same game book, that playbook that Putin used. Uh, surprise attack, mass killing of civilians, mm. rape, torture, taking hostages. He's taken over 10,000 children as hostage. Ukrainian kids. I mean, the guy is a brutal, uh, brutal, barbaric dictator. And um, and we're seeing this step up, you know, and Biden sort of like passive saying, you know, let, hoping it's going to go away. Meanwhile, there have been the last number I heard, 70 Iranian proxy attacks on U.S. military forces across the Middle East. That's right. So I think we're at war um, and we don't want to admit we're at a war. But it's a it's a it's a nascent war and it's growing and it's right and it and we will feel the effects of it at some point. You have an axis of evil, I would say, with Iran, Russia, and China. You could throw in North Korea, Chris, but for the moment I'm putting them aside because Iran is selling drones to Russia for for cash, obviously, so Iran can sponsor terrorism. 
But, Chris, the other factor is, you know, Xi Jinping meeting with Joe Biden in San Francisco. The dirty little secret is China buying oil from Iran and buying oil from Russia is financing two wars against the United States. Well, yeah, we can't handle uh, and Biden certainly doesn't want to handle multiple fronts in a war. Mm. And um, Taiwan, you know, they're ratcheting up the tensions. I, I think that Xi Sorry. is very weak. And we saw this Afghanistan. This was the signal when they saw this. I mean, the evacuate. I wasn't a big fan of the Afghan war, but when they saw the way we evacuated, mm-hmm. Larry, Mm-hmm. They they knew this was going to be a guy that was not going to be strong, and he keeps wanting to avoid war, so he plays the appeal. And the way he does this is just he'll he'll tell the Ukrainians, "I want to help you. I'll give you aid, but don't do this and don't do that." And they slow walk the military aid, and now now he gave the Russians a year to build up their military military strength, and they've they've used it now. And we can't break through. And he's telling the Israelis the same thing. People around the Netanyahu government are telling me he's telling them not to. He wants to cease fire. He doesn't want to. And you were talking, I think, earlier about the medical supply. He, mm. All he wants to focus on is helping the Gazans. Mm. Yeah, you know, um, I think they're going to wind up. They, I think the Biden administration will slow walk aid to Israel. I mean, already they lost a vote last night. Direct aid to Israel, $14 billion, was a Republican proposal. They wanted to link it to Ukraine, complicate it with Taiwan and the southern border. But, Chris, you broke up a second. I just want to make sure that the idea that China, by its oil purchases, you know, breaking sanctions with both Russia and Iran, don't you think they're playing a major role here in uh, wars against America? Yeah, I do. I, I look. They're all in cahoots. They're all trying to undermine yeah. any sanctions that we have, you know. And I also think the Saudis are not helping. Mm. You know, they keep cutting oil production, which has risen the price of oil. And the principal reason why Russia and and Iran are able to to fight and continue doing what they're doing mm. is that they have this huge amount of money that. Um, um, we know the Russians have brought in about $100 billion in revenue because of oil prices being so high. We know that. Mm-hmm. We know that Iran's brought in um, $60 billion. And, and I saw President Trump, your good friend, recently, and he said, you know, when he left, Iran had no money. Nothing. Biden's allowed them to get money. It wasn't just the $6 billion. He's, he's given them tens of billions by lifting the sanctions. It's a, listen, it's a really important point. I mean, Trump took out their chief uh, terror master, Soleimani. They did nothing. Why'd they do nothing? Because they didn't have any money. Why didn't they have any money? Because we made the sanctions work. Biden's lifted the sanctions or relaxed them to such an extent. That's what's driving me crazy about this China meeting. Biden won't let, you know, he won't finger China. It's like they're not our adversary. I mean, there were moments when he didn't want to finger Putin. And he never did say, by the way, if you go back to February 2022, remember Biden said, don't do this. Don't you dare invade Ukraine. If you do horrible, bad things are going to happen. He never said what. And then I couldn't figure out what horrible, bad things exactly happened, Chris. No, he's gone very easy and he's he's showing. And if you look at the response that we basically had, I would say it was Boris Johnson and, funny enough, Nancy Pelosi that mm. really led the effort to respond mm. to the invasion. 
And I think it's very – a lot of conservatives are not supporting the Ukrainians. I think they're wrong. It's A lot of the stuff is out there. I think that the Russians are influencing social media in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the 80% of the aid that goes there goes back to U.S. Def- defense contractors. Uh, there's like three different audit levels mm. uh, involved. So the money is going where it is supposed to go. They're not stealing it like they keep saying on different social media platforms. Um, and this is and we failed had, I believe, Biden sent 60 HIMAR, those specialty trucks, artillery trucks that have those smart bombs. He only sent 14 the first year and they were able to take back 20 percent of the territory Russia stole. Had he sent 60 that year and not put so many restrictions, I think we would have pushed them back. And I think this thing would have been over early. You know, that's a key point. I know. I didn't know that until I read your essay in uh, on the Newsmax. I did not know that. So that's like a really important point. I just hope uh, Biden doesn't slow walk Israel because they're going to have to replace the Iron Dome. Right. I mean, they need munitions. They need ordnance. It's going to be a long battle. And if he does the same, if you are 100 percent right, Chris, right. And and you might be 100 percent right. The. Biden pattern in the Ukraine repeated in Israel would be very, very bad outcome for Israel. Well, I w- very Larry, bad. I was told by somebody that was with um, that that's very close to Netanyahu's government. And when Biden came publicly, he was very supportive when he went to Israel. Mm-hmm. But behind the scenes, all he was doing was pressuring them not to go to a larger war. Mm-hmm. And they know what they're doing. I mean, they know you can't not. If you, the minute you say we're not going to invade Gaza because there's hostages, you now give them the full power and you're not helping to rescue the hostages. Mm-hmm. And you're giving them time to even transport them out of the country. So the Israelis knew what they're doing, but there's a tremendous pressure on Israel to stop. And, you know, shockingly, uh, the amount of um, effort to equivocate here and to give equivalent equivalency to this mm-hmm. among the Democrats. You were just talking about Schumer. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just shocking. Uh, I'm just I'm shocked that they're not they're not responding to the obvious even anti-Semitism we're now seeing across the United States. So the Biden set up an Islamophobia working group in the White House. Where was the anti-Semitic working group in the White House? Yeah, no, I mean, they they are turning the tables. It's a very strange situation we're seeing. And I believe that we need to be very, very strong. And I think, look, President Trump says he could solve this in 24 hours. I don't think that's true, but I think he could he could solve it pretty quickly. And part of it is just showing resolve to these guys. You you were in the White House. You dealt when the Chinese saw we had a strong president, they caved to us constantly. But when they see weakness and they sense it, they're going to take advantage of it. Appeasement, Chris Reddy, appeasement has never worked. Really, it's never worked. I I was in the Capitol building today. I saw Mike Johnson, a number of people, oh, yeah. and I put on my Instagram. I don't put a lot. I saw Winston Churchill's um, a bust of him with a with um, his quote about the start of America together with Britain, mm. and it's in an alcove mm. off the main rotunda. And I thought, terrible place. Why don't we have a real life size? But we don't have Neville Chamberlain's chat. <laughs> that yeah, he was. Right. He was a man, peace in our time, right? Mm. He and and not, Biden is the Neville Chamberlain of our time. Yes, we need a strong guy in the White House. I have a few suggestions on that, but that's a different segment. 
Folks, I, I know Chris Reddy is on, on the move. Uh, he's very kind to call in and do this interview. You should read his excellent column up on Newsmax. Christopher Reddy is CEO of Newsmax Media, Inc. He's also a dear friend. Chris, I love you. Thank you for coming all on right, the show. Right. Talk Be soon. Well, look all forward right. to seeing you. You bet. Bye bye. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. Back to the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back to the Larry Kudlow Show. Joe Concha in for Larry Kudlow. And we got a great guest here. New York Times bestselling author, host of the dedicated, would we call it a podcast, Doug, on Sirius XM? Or is that a show at this point? It's, well, it's a podcast. Okay. It's the same thing, I guess, right? <laughs> there really is no I, I difference. It's sort of interchangeable. Very good. This is Doug Brunt, and he has written his third book, The Mysterious Case of Rudolf Diesel, Genius, Power, and Deception on the Eve of World War One. And when I picked up your book, Doug, it was kind of by happenstance. I was just basically going to get a water and I think some Altoids or something at Newark Airport. And there it was, prominently featured. And I, I think I texted you when I saw it. I'm like, hey, you got pretty good placement here. You wrote two of my favorite books. And I'm not saying that because you're the interviewee and I'm supposed to make you feel good because we're going to make things comfortable. Because I've told you this, Ghosts of Manhattan, which is not about ghosts, but about a bond trader who was trying to escape Wall Street as his marriage goes south. And The Means, which is one of the great political th- thrillers that you'll, you'll ever read. I'm not going to give away the, the ending, by the way. It was a surprise ending. I did not see coming, and you got me, so congratulations on that. You're not Bob Woodward in terms of you've written 18 books. These were your first two. Those were bestsellers, but now you go the non-fictional direction. Rudolf Diesel, he's this prominent inventor, businessman, lost at sea in 1913, and no one could definitively conclude whether it was foul play, bad luck, or something different altogether. So what made you want to explore a mystery from more than 110 years ago? Like you, I think, six years ago, I didn't know there was a person behind a diesel engine, but Rudolf Diesel invented it more than 100 years ago. And it has played an enormous role in war and industry to the present day, all through the 20th century. Our global economy is powered by diesel. Everything moves under diesel, every cargo ship, train, truck. Yeah. And he disappeared mysteriously, as you say, on the eve of World War One. It's hard to describe what a big deal it was at the time, because the history of the man has sort of been paved over. It's the reason we don't know the name, but there's a reason why it's been paved over and it's explained in this book, which has been described as the greatest caper of the 20th century. But at the time, he was a celebrity. It was like Elon Musk, to put it in today's terms, like Elon Musk disappearing. And so the newspaper headlines Hmm. in New York, the New York Times, the papers in London, Western Europe, all the way out to Russia, were covering the story of this crazy disappearance. Some thought it was suicide, but there were two other theories of murder. One, that he was murdered by Kaiser Wilhelm II of Germany, and the other, that he was murdered by John Rockefeller. And they each had a reason, because diesel represented an existential threat to them both. Because by 1913, the diesel engine had emerged as the only power source for a submarine or U-boat. And this is at the height of militarism and nationalism and the Anglo-German naval arms race. So everyone's scrambling for submarine power and diesel power, and he's still the man who can deliver it. And the reason he was crossing the North Sea that day when he was traveling, when he disappeared in the North Sea, was to go start a diesel engine manufacturing company in Great Britain to build diesel engines for the Royal Navy submarine fleet. So the Kaiser didn't want his German citizen going across and helping the British Navy. The reason Rockefeller was viewing diesel as an existential threat was that diesel advocated using fuels other than petroleum. He used a different kind of fuel. It, could, it was a heavy oil. He could use vegetable oil. 
nut oil or even coal tar. And he was in 1912 traveling around America saying, I can break the American fuel monopoly and I don't need a law to do it. I don't need the Sherman Antitrust Act. I can do it with the power of my technology. So he was advocating that if you have farmers, you can grow your own fuel. You don't need to be beholden to petroleum in the ground somewhere else in the world. And actually, that's true to this day. Now, diesel engines that they run on a form of petroleum diesel, but it doesn't have to be the case. Willie Nelson was driving around his tour bus 15 years ago with a diesel engine running recycled kitchen grease, basically vegetable oil. So he was a threat to Rockefeller. That's why papers drew these lines to these potential murder suspects, because the circumstances of his disappearance were just so suspicious and weird. That is amazing. And I've read the book. I'm on page 299 right now. And the theories were, as you mentioned, he was a threat to Germany, obviously, for defecting to the British Navy, to America in terms of its energy and its exports in that regard. But also, the theory was that maybe he committed suicide. And and you make a very good point on page 299, where even small details, such as the strange placement of Rudolph's, and I like the fact you use his first name throughout instead of Diesel, because Diesel's like a Xerox, right? Or a Coke. It's it's a brand. (laughs) So you personalize it by using his first name. I've noticed that. Rudolph's hat and coat beneath the rail of the stern deck now appeared so contrived as to be less a marker of suicide than a prop for deception. So you Mm -hmm. seem to throw suicide out the window and go to the fact that since he was a threat, he probably was murdered. But my question is, did an old boat in Barnegat Bay in New Jersey have anything to do with you wanting to write this story? (laughs) That is very true. So I I did not know much about diesel, but I bought an old boat uh, about eight years ago and I was going to need some fixing up. The bigger boat needed to be fixed up. And I was in the boatyard talking to the guy about what I should do with his phone. He said, well, look, the first thing you should do for a boat like this is repower it from gasoline engine to diesel. And so I, of course, was like, well, what is that? I always thought diesel fuel. You know, we pass the word diesel all the time, usually misspelled with a lowercase d. So I just thought it was a fuel option yeah. at the fueling station. He said 100% of boat fires come from gasoline engines, zero from diesel. The fuel efficiency is greater. So you've got three, four times the range on your, on your tank of fuel. There's zero fumes, you know, and you can drop a lit match into a barrel of diesel fuel. Nothing will happen. Uh, and it's, it's just not a flammable fuel, and, and the engine doesn't even require a spark. So it's just a better engine, particularly for marine use. And so then I, that was my first exposure to diesel. And then I was, as you know, I'm a, a novelist in the past. And I was kicking around the Internet looking for ideas that might spark something for me on a, on a new book. And I came across this list of mysterious disappearances at sea. And on the list was Rudolph Diesel. So off I went. How does one solve a mystery from 1913 during a time where, you know, there's not a Google machine to make doing research infinitely easier? So did you do all the research yourself? With my book, I did. And that was my favorite part of of writing my first book and now my second, which is almost done. But you're trying to solve a mystery based on basically going, I would imagine, to libraries and going through old newspaper articles and trying to put together dots in a puzzle where you can't even speak to any witnesses or anybody who was around at the time. So, So how did you pull this off? Well, in some ways, doing research on a story from 1913 is even easier now than it would have been in the 20s or 30s or even a few years ago, because the newspaper archives are are very available in databases. So much is scanned and more is scanned every day. So I can look at the newspaper reporting in the weeks after his disappearance. It was a flurry of activity, and there was so much contradictory reporting, but there's lots of testimony captured in in the newspaper. So I can find out what's happening in Berlin, London, Munich, New York all in doing what I would call library research. You know, some of these databases require subscriptions, some don't, but you can 
find out so much from the newspapers, whereas, you know, 100 years ago, you had to be pulling, pulling filing cabinets out in different cities around the world. So in that sense, it was easier to track the newspaper reporting. But there are a number of archives that have kept some of his personal material and his business documents and his letters. And I, uh, I did do all the research myself, which I, like you, I love. It's like the geeky side of Indiana Jones. <laughs> And uh, a lot of it was in German. So I went back to my old high school and found a German professor. And he translated reams of material for me from German to English, which was very helpful. And added a real personal touch because he was a beautiful writer and he had beautiful letters to his wife and family. Great job with this. I mean, it, it seems like such a passion project. And for everybody out there, the mysterious case of Rudolf Diesel. If you want the ultimate escapism outside of sports, this is absolutely it. Go buy it wherever books are sold. And, and Douglas Brown, I really appreciate your time. Thanks so much. Joe, thank you. Great to be with you. Absolutely. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. We'll be back with more in just a moment. It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. And welcome back. It is the Larry Kudlow Show on the Red Apple Audio Network. I am Joe Concha filling in this hour for Mr. Kudlow. It's Thanksgiving weekend. Well, I guess it's Thanksgiving weekend before Thanksgiving, which basically begins a nine-day respite for those who work hard. And no one works harder than Larry Kudlow. does five days a week on Fox Business, a show I appear on every week. And then, obviously, this radio show as well. And the guy's a social guy. I go out maybe five, six times a year. And by the way, who is this person you're listening to? This is Joe Concha. I am a Fox News contributor and a columnist for The Messenger and appear on the show almost every week at this point on, on Saturdays. It's a, a labor of love, certainly, to join Larry on the Saturday morning show. And look, there's so much to talk about. I mean, every time Larry asks, hey, can you fill in for me? I'm never thinking, boy, it's kind of a slow news time right now. I don't know if I could fill an hour or two. Well, guess what? <laughs> this thing practically wrote itself. And this news is as surprising as the sun rising in the east and birds flying south for the winter. And, of course, what we're talking about is that President Biden is not going to be charged in the classified documents case where he kept highly classified documents in a garage next to his prized Corvette in Delaware. Completely unsecure. Anybody could have had access to these things. And, look, I get that everybody from President Trump to Senator Biden, then Vice President Biden, to Hillary Clinton, to Mike Pence, who hasn't taken classified documents when they shouldn't have at this point. I mean, I used to go to Blockbuster, and I couldn't walk out with the movie without 10 alarms going off. But for some reason, you could remove all these highly classified documents out of the White House, and in Joe Biden's case, as a senator from, from, from a skiff which apparently is supposed to be something you can't just walk out with documents with, but he did as a senator and as a vice president. So all I'm saying is, let's just be consistent here. It's, it's pretty simple. Either you indict everybody, charge everybody who has taken classified documents of a highly sensitive nature, or you do not. And you slap them on the wrist and say, don't do it again. That's it. But of course we can't do that because it's rules for D's and not for thee. Or in this case, rules for D's and not for DJT as in Donald J. Trump. So, again, with not just 
in Delaware, next to the Corvette with Biden, but they are in Chinatown in Washington, D.C. They are in this location at the Penn Biden Center in Washington. They were spread out all over the place, which leads you to believe that this was intentional, obviously. It wasn't that, oops, we accidentally packed these things. If they're spread out among all these different locations, then they took them for a reason and they were putting them in these specific places for a reason. And only after Biden got caught did he turn them back over. And that's the thing, right? He was caught with these documents well before the 2022 midterms, but it was only reported after the fact, after the votes were in, after they could play the card, see Donald Trump's a bad guy, vote for me. And that, that's the thing that obviously drives people crazy out there, that there are obviously, I know you've heard this term a thousand times on Fox and other na- uh, stations, but it bears repeating. There is a two-tiered justice system, and it is weaponized at this point. And that's why I think Donald Trump now, in every poll you see, remember Washington Post about a month ago, Washington Post ABC poll, had Trump leading by 10 points over Biden. And every Democrat went nuts saying that poll's an outlier. It's BS. Don't listen to it. How could Trump be leading by 10? And then suddenly the New York Times comes out with a poll, New York Times Siena. And Trump is leading in five of six swing states, including plus 11 in Nevada. He didn't even win Nevada in 2016. Didn't win it in 2020, and now he's up double digits there, up big in Georgia and in Arizona, up in Michigan and Pennsylvania, basically tied in Wisconsin. If Trump wins even four of those six states, he's the next president. If he wins three of those next states, if it's Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin, like he did in 2016, he's the next president because everything else holds. Texas stays red. North Carolina's a red state. Ohio's a red state. Florida's a red state now at this point. And then, obviously, Democrats take the usual California, Illinois, New York, and so on. So if everything holds and then you win those swing states, those three, three of six, you're the next president. You win five of six, then we're talking about nearly a landslide. So the reason why I think Trump suddenly is going up in the polls, because he hasn't really done anything extraordinary in terms of like a new policy announcement or anything like that. I think a lot of it has to do with Biden regressing, obviously, both in age and both in performance when we're talking about economy, inflation, crime education, the border, immigration, foreign policy, and the world basically feeling like it's on fire at this point. All those factors combined with the fact that you know Joe Biden isn't like, you know, a fine wine. He's not going to get better with age. He's only going to get worse. And it's why all these Democrats now, David Axelrod and Nate Silver and down the line, James Carville, all begging Biden to get out because they know that he can't win. But on the other side of it, I think the fact that Trump facing all these prosecutions, to get back to our original point, people see these for what they are. They hear that, wait, he overvalued Mar-a-Lago, it's only worth $18 million? And then they look at properties in Palm Beach, if you do a little research, the tennis court at Mar-a-Lago is worth $18 million. Okay, I I might be exaggerating slightly, but you, you get my point. Property in Palm Beach. I went to, I did a speech in, at the Breakers there recently, right? Big grand hotel. I got married at the Breakers, but that was one in Jersey, and that's a whole other story for another time. That's a beautiful hotel as well. Don't get me wrong, Spring Lake, New Jersey, go visit it sometime. But the point is that Palm Beach, for a sprawling property like that on the water, that thing's worth easily over $100 million. So you hear these charges by Letitia James, the attorney general, who's there in court smiling all the time because she knows that this obviously will help her political career in a blue state like New York. It's nothing to do with justice. And taking the classified documents has nothing to do with justice because if justice truly were blind, then Joe Biden would be charged and Hillary Clinton would definitely be charged. What she did was worse than both men did 10 times over 
because she was Secretary of State and she put things on a classified server, which then therefore could be accessed by China and Russia and so on, and I'm sure they did. So charge all these people that don't charge them at all. And when people see these things going on with Trump, I think he becomes a martyr to a certain extent. And they're reminded of what the swamp really is at this point. It's weaponizing these things to take out political opponents, just like you would in a third world country. And that's where we are right now. Getting to other matters, by the way, this is unbelievable. And it's beyond disturbing for that matter. And I'm going to talk to Carol Roth about this in a little bit, uh, who's going to be our next guest. When you have millennials now on TikTok, in large numbers, by the way, saying that they support Osama bin Laden because of some letter he wrote years and years ago, before 9-11. And they are now sympathetic to bin Laden, the man responsible for the death of almost 3,000 Americans, including many at the World Trade Center, many that... We all knew somebody, I think, that, that died there, right, in, in the most horrific ways, by the way. And, and they're also participating in these anti-Israel protests after the worst attack on Jews was carried out on October 7th that we can remember since the Holocaust, 1,400 brutally slaughtered, 33 Americans dead, and they're sympathizing with Hamas and the other side? So add it all up. And, and the fact that more Americans are getting their news, news from TikTok, than Actual legitimate news sources, TikTok, a spy application, courtesy of the Chinese Communist Party that Joe Biden so openly bear hugged in San Francisco. That tells us we have a serious information crisis on our hands, especially with young adults. And by the way, for all the parents out there, get out of your phones. Stop reading when you're at dinner while your kids are sitting across from you. Take a part in their education. Make sure that they're not getting sucked in by this stuff. Parents bear just as big a responsibility here. Because if all these young adults are marching on college campuses for all these causes, something went wrong before they got there. I get when you get to college that the professors are profoundly liberal. I think it's something like 97% at Harvard, according to their own student newspaper, identify as liberal. So I get they're going to be brainwashed when they get there. But there's got to be some barriers before they get there to places like Harvard or Penn or Stanford that says this is right and this is wrong and here's why. And that comes from the home. And I think I see way too many parents absorbed, literally just looking at their phones, scrolling through, while their kids are sitting below them. Three, four years old, I was at a soccer game recently, and they're in their phones too. Why does the kid have a phone? Why, why not read to them? Why not talk to them? Instead, no. You, you do that, you're opening yourself up for this nonsense. And that's where we're at at this point. Uh, by the way, this is Joe Concha. I am filling in for Larry Kudlow. This is the Red Apple Audio Network. Carol Roth, big-time guest. She is an entrepreneur. She has a great book. It's called You Will Own Nothing, which is really uplifting on a Saturday to, to, to think about. But she, she knows what she's talking about. And, and basically, just to give you a little taste of it, what she's saying is the government is now taking so much that we will be a socialist country where we just rent things and we're just constantly paying interest on everything because that's by design by the government because that gives them more control. So we'll talk to her about her book and obviously what's going on in this country right now. The Israel-Hamas war still rages, even though I, I should say it should be not called a war, by the way. It should be called Israel's self-defense against Hamas. Don't call it a war because war makes it sound two-sided. And there's no two sides to this. Hamas started this and Israel's going to end it. And if they don't, well, then Israel's going to be ended. And that's what Hamas has promised, even after this self-defense began, that they will conduct the type of attacks that they did on October 7th over and over and over 
again until Israel is eliminated. So what would you have them do? No ceasefire, choke them in those tunnels, make them give up the hostages, and then eliminate them the way that Donald Trump basically eliminated ISIS way back when, when he destroyed that caliphate that was operating in clear sight. I, I couldn't believe when I saw those videos, by the way. You see them just marching across whole highways. It goes like five miles long. I'm like, boy, why won't Obama just bomb that highway where they're marching right now? And he never did. Trump did. What was it called? The Moab, Mother of All Bombs. That's a cool acronym. We haven't heard much about that since, but you get the point. you got to eliminate these people or else they will eliminate Israel and then eventually us through Iran. This is Joe Concha filling in for Larry Kudlow. Carol Roth coming up in just a moment. This is the Red Apple Audio Network. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. And welcome back. It is Larry Kudlow Show. I am Joe Concha filling in for Mr. Kudlow on the Red Apple Audio Network. Joining us now, the two-time New York Times bestselling author. Latest book, You Will Own Nothing. It is out now. Get it wherever you get books. Probably Amazon. That's where I get mine. Carol Roth, welcome to the show. First time caller, long time listener? No, I've actually been on with Larry uh, several times over the years. That's right. You were uh, co-workers yeah. over at CNBC way back when. We were. We sure were. This is true. I think the topic today is, you know, what is a song uh, from the past that you love that is absolutely ridiculous? That's and an I awesome say, question. I will save the answers for the podcast, the list, wherever you can get your podcast. Okay, very good. Mine's I Want Candy by uh, Bow Wow Wow. Is that who it was, right? You just say very I Want good. Candy over and over again. I mean, it's, there's actually almost no lyrics, but it's it's fitting. You know, I always want it's candy. It's something we can all relate to, yes. Indeed, but we'll talk about that on the podcast. Anyway, so I want to get to your book first because I just uh, promoted the heck out of it because I really loved it. It, it. it horrified me, don't get me wrong, but it did give me a roadmap as far as what I have to do for my future as far as having something instead of nothing. So why will everybody basically own nothing, like a house, a car, a business, stocks, and your life in general? Yeah, well, I certainly think everybody listening here, you know, following Larry is very focused on what's happening economically. Uh, I don't think that it's a secret that things in the global financial order are shifting. And this is something that happens on a, a regular basis throughout history. You know, the U.S. has been at the center of the global financial universe for about 80 years. But before us, it was the British. And before the British, it was the Dutch. And, you know, as things shift, um, the global elites are doing more and more things to make sure that they come out on top. Um, and in the process, you know, <laughs> seem to be leaving the middle and working class with less and less and eventually potentially nothing. So I was playing off that meme from the World Economic Forum that went around, you'll own nothing and you'll be happy. And, you know, whether it's the Fed devaluing our dollars whether it's the possibility for central bank digital currency, whether it's Wall Street coming into the single-family home market and competing uh, you know, with families for that largest asset on their balance sheet, 
whether it's the often non, you know, non-existent ROI for college these days, whether it's big tech renting our lives back to us as a subscription or a service, there are just more and more barriers to us creating wealth. And we have to, to own that property that has the opportunity to retain value or appreciate in value to be able to have that wealth. So it's just sort of a rallying cry about all the, the things that are going on and a reminder to ignore the elite and what they're saying, but do what they're doing and make sure that you own things. And we're talking to Carol Roth. She is the author of You Will Own Nothing and the co-host of the greatest podcast ever called The List with Carol Roth and Joe Concha. What do you make of, I mean, I, I can't get my head around this, between these pro-Palestinian violent marches, when you contrast it anyway with the, the, the March for Israel, which happened in our nation's capital on Tuesday, nearly 300,000 people, uh, no violence, uh, no burning of flags, no police officers getting beat up like they were at the DNC by, by these pro-Palestinian, which basically is pro-Hamas protesters. Now I'm seeing that Osama bin Laden apparently wrote a letter to America 21 years ago, 2002, and it goes up on TikTok, and now all these TikTok users are praising this letter, primarily millennials. I know you don't have children. I want to thank you uh, for, for avoiding uh, the madness that I'm sure some parents are going through right now when they see uh, their teenage kids praising Osama bin Laden, who killed nearly 3,000 people in this country 20 years ago, and marching in these pro-Palestinian protests uh, against Israel. I, I am utterly horrified for the future, and I'm drilling it home to my, my kids right now. The fact that bin Laden's being praised of all people, I, this is just extraordinary to me. I, I want to get your thoughts on it because I know the obviously the Israel uh, self-defense uh, against Hamas, I'm not calling it a war, uh, is, is very near and dear to your heart as uh, obviously a, a Jewish citizen. Yes. No, I mean, it, it would be the equivalent of being like, well, you know, Hitler had some good points. You know, here, yep. here's some nice things that he said. I heard he, he was a painter. Oh, he did some <laughs> lovely painting. Yet this, this is not the road we want to go down. And I would say that it's a failure of the education system, but I think it's entirely intentional. I think this is what the education system in this country was designed to do. It was designed to create people, young people, um, who didn't have critical thinking skills, who were able to be indoctrinated by propaganda and to be tools of the state. I mean, it feels very much like Orwell's 1984 come to life. If you remember, the, the kids in there had a very central role in uh, turning in their right. parents. Um, and it's, uh, it's a very sad and scary time to see these young kids. And, I mean, listen, we know young kids are stupid. We all, you know, rebel and, and say stupid things. But, like, we never sided with terrorists. You know, there was certainly a clear line of our stupidity and the things that we said and the, the, the backlash and the idea that they don't know this very recent history um, and they don't understand you know, the difference between terrorism and self-defense. They don't know what they're chanting for when they say from the river to the sea, yep. yet they're so easily drawn into this, you know, victimization and this, um, you know, identity politics and collectivism it's just a really scary time, and uh, it, it's against everything that the, the founders built America on, the principles of the individual being the, the smallest minority that needs protection and, uh, you know, the fact that we don't lump people in together based on immutable characteristics or based on their religion or whatnot. Speaking of Chicago, 85 percent of fourth grade students there can't read. 
can't read. Yep. So they turn to social media, and that's just the way that works out. Unfortunately, Carol, uh, we, we got to go, but the book is called You Will Own Nothing. The podcast is called The List with Carol, Loss, Carol Roth, he meant to say, and Joe Concha. This is the Larry Kudlow Show on the Red Apple Audio Network. Back with more in just a moment. It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. And welcome back to the Larry Kudlow Show on the Red Apple Audio Network. Joining us now is Derek Hunter, who has so many titles, I'm going to let him introduce himself. Derek, what are you up to these days? <laughs> well, what am I not up to? I've got surgery scheduled for later this afternoon. No, I, oh. I am a, a senior columnist for Town Hall, a columnist, just a regular old columnist for The Hill, podcast host and uh, crisis management so whatever you want to call it I, I pretty much answer to hey you and ugly so it's all right it's all good. <laughs> and you're a loving husband by the way to the probably the, the best uh, producer in radio uh no offense to our folks that we're working with today of course but uh, uh heather hunter uh, of wmal i've had the pleasure of working with and uh, hope she is well and the kids so want to talk about joe biden right now and the clock is ticking as far as the time he needs to remove himself as the Democratic nominee because you, if you have, you got to get the backups on ballots, and you basically have to do that by the beginning of the year, right? Because that's when we have, in, in Democrats' case, South Carolina first, Iowa, New Hampshire. Is Joe Biden going to be the nominee? And if he is, will he get better with age or worse with age? The second question is rhetorical, but I want to get your thoughts on it anyway. <laughs> Well, wine gets better with age. Some wine does, but most of it just turns to vinegar. Um, <laughs> you know, you sit there and you say there are certain deadlines that you have to get out by in order to get somebody on the ballot, which is true if you're dealing with normal circumstances. But as we've seen over the course of many years when various Democrats have dropped out of races or passed away or been exposed to be involved in scandal, they sue and a judge will go, well, we can't have that happen. We'll, we'll, the law is really interesting except for when it's needed, and then they just ignore it and go past it. So I wouldn't put a, I wouldn't put a hard deadline on Joe Biden having to get out. That being said, the only person who can really make Joe Biden get out is Jill. She's right. the only, I'm sorry, the Reverend Dr. Jill. She's <laughs> the one who has to look back and say this is elder abuse what we're doing to my husband is cruel and i cannot i cannot countenance it any longer and i think she like pretty much everybody who's lived in the white house goes living in the white house is a pretty sweet deal i don't want to give that up that and the fact that who the democrats have you got to remember joe the vice president is right there she's ready and eager the only problem is nobody likes her she's the only person in the Democratic Party, who by comparison makes Joe Biden look popular. So <laughs> they don't want to get rid of her, and they don't, if they get rid of him, they can't go to her. But they are the party of identity politics. So if they dump her and go for a rich white guy, like the only person you can name in the Democratic Party who's ready to run, in Gavin Newsom, the California governor, then they run risk of irritating a huge swath of their base whom they have conditioned to believe that skin color, gender, sexual orientation is way more important than anything else, and they go from rich white guy to rich white guy, the only difference being about 30 years in age. So they've painted themselves in a corner. Forget about the timeline. They have to keep Joe Biden weekend at Bernie. They have no other alternative that won't alienate their base. 
And we're talking to Derek Hunter. I, he's columnist for Town Hall, of course. Derek, what do you think of this theory that you hear at cocktail parties and happy hours and so on that says that at the Democratic National Convention in Chicago, Joe Biden will announce that he has some sort of health issue that prevents him from serving for the next four years. And then electors, delegates, uh, they will insert Michelle Obama into the ticket. Do you see that happening? I could see all of it happening except Michelle Obama. There is no appetite for Michelle Obama. If you know, look, she's she's a, a fine abstract. She her first book did very well. Her second book did not do all that well. She's not a particularly compelling person. Her story is not all that interesting. Her her delivery or anything about her when she speaks. She's a little bit better than Hillary Clinton, which sort of makes her the tallest midget, but it is not <laughs> something that really does good. Nobody goes, boy, I, I really left that Michelle Obama speech inspired. I left it changed different. I, Michelle Obama put it in perspective that I never thought of before. Great point. She is not that sort of way. It would be, it, And besides, it would be a way to say, well, they're just trying to skirt the Constitution. They want to give Barack a third term. That's all it is, because that's all it would be. She's been unambiguous about her desire to have nothing to do with politics. I don't I think there could be a play at the convention. I don't see her being it. If anything, I think they roll out Hillary again if they because they can't. Like I said, they can't go to Gavin Newsom. He's too rich, and too white and too straight. He's so straight that he's left with his uh, chief of staff and campaign manager's wife when he was mayor of San Francisco. So you can't have that. <laughs> So they they're really it really is a sad commentary on the Democratic Party that they don't have a bench. They're like the Republicans were in 2008, where the Bush administration produced literally nobody. A whole bunch of people wanted to be president that nobody wanted to be president. And so they ended up with John McCain. That's a great point. And we're talking to Derek Hunter. And I think the Hillary angle is one that's not talked about enough because she is doing a little bit more media than one would expect of somebody who lost, I don't know, seven years ago. But you're right. She probably would be the most viable. And then the argument would be, would be well, she won the popular vote, so she has the best chance of anybody. But she is just so unlikable. But then again, when you yes. don't have a bench, then, as you said, it's you go for uh, the skinniest kid at Fat Camp or the tallest midget in the room, to use your analogy. So, yeah, maybe, maybe it would be Hillary. But either way, if Joe Biden ends up being the nominee and then all these other people jump in, like Joe Manchin on a no-labels ticket with you know Larry Hogan or Liz Cheney, and then you have, obviously, Jill Stein, and you have that guy from Minnesota, the, the congressman the, that's running against Biden. Cornell West. Cornell and, West uh, as well, and um, RFK Jr. I keep yeah. seeing these, these stories, and I wrote the opposite, that they would draw from Trump. And I'm like, I don't think so, because Trump's core base, as DeSantis and Haley are finding out pretty quickly, very hard to peel off. Joe Biden doesn't have a base. They're easy to peel off. So more candidates, I would think, means... Worst news for Joe Biden. Where do you come down on it? Well, I think RFK could take some from Donald Trump just because conservative media, for reasons they thought were good at the time, of, well, we're going to hurt Joe Biden if we raise up RFK Jr., are now realizing that some people actually took them seriously and thought that didn't, since they didn't focus on the fact that RFK Jr. is a, a big time leftist. Yeah. But it's a different world. Donald Trump's support is solid, but having 
30 in the solid part, there's a whole bunch of people I think are just like, I'm going to vote for him. But I think the 30 percent of the Republican Party is with Donald Trump, ride or die. That's not enough. That's a, equates about 15 percent of the population in a four or five way race with some viable candidates pulling in decent percentages. You could win conceivably with 20 to 25 percent of the vote in that respect. It, Joe Biden could win. Joe Biden could be the least popular person ever reelected president. Any of them could actually win. It just depends on which states they manage to carry. So I wouldn't necessarily say that I'd say one Ross Perot type candidate would hurt Joe Biden because it tends to hurt the incumbent and people who can't bring themselves to vote for the other person will vote for the third party. But three or four of them, I don't know where that where we end up in that situation because whoever wins a state wins the electoral college and you can win a state with 20, 25% of the vote that would even possibly now people would have to vote in a very weird unpatterned way that could put California in play. If there are three different left wingers on the ballot and you just pick your flavor of Neapolitan left winger you want, and you could separate the, the vote of the left in California to the point that it puts it in play for the Republican. I wouldn't hold wow. my breath on that one, but you can see how that applies to other states where it's much closer. And we're talking to Derek Hunter. RFK Jr., I look at his platform, so to speak, and then I hear people say, well, those who might vote for Trump will go for RFK Jr. instead. And I'm like, well, he's an environmentalist. I mean, <laughs> is, it yeah. the, is it the vaccine stance? I mean, I don't know if people are that passionate about that. I mean, maybe they were a couple of years ago, but it's kind of a thing that it's so 2020, 2021. So I, I don't know if that's like a deciding issue for people. I would think that economy, it's always number one, right? Inflation still too high. I love how this administration keeps telling me that inflation is falling, by the way. Uh, it's not. Yeah. Uh, it, it's it's very basic. If I gain 60 pounds and my wife says, hey, this isn't what I signed up for, go on a diet. And I say, hey, honey, I only gained 20 pounds last month instead. That's not in, that's not my weight going down. <laughs> it just means right. I didn't get as fat as quickly. And they keep saying it over and over again. It drives me nuts. But I, I, that, that's the thing with RFK. I just don't see him in the end. People voting for him over Trump when economy is a big, big issue, foreign policy, obviously a big issue. Our case never held public office before and crime and immigration, the border. I don't even know where uh, Kennedy well, you, you can't make that. the never held. You can't hold the uh, never held public office before when your candidate is Trump. That's a very good point. So that goes out the window. Well, has he run a business you're, or anything? You're, you're, I, he's run nonprofits, environmental nonprofits. But you have okay. to understand, Joe, the biggest audience he's going to get they're not going to have him on Fox anymore, they, at least not in a friendly way that they did when they thought it was damaging Joe Biden. So the biggest audience he's already he's going to have this campaign, he's already had. And in that audience, in those audiences, multiple times, they focused almost exclusively on the things that they agree with or that they he disagrees with Joe Biden on, which makes him somewhat appealing to Republican voters who might not be super excited about Donald Trump. I'm not saying that in the course of the next year they won't uh, have their eyes opened wider or what have you, but I'm just telling you that that's where it is right now. That's how you get to him polling 13, 14 percent is the people who have MSNBC and CNN aren't having him on. So the people who saw him on Fox said, you know what, he sounds reasonable because they only focused on the things that they agreed with him on. They've got a year to blow that all to hell and they will. But that's just this, the polling is where we are right now. If the election were held today 
everybody'd be surprised because it's not 2024. So I wouldn't put much stock in polls right now unless you give them the full context of where they are, of what what produced them. It is Joe Concha filling in for Larry Kudlow on the Red Apple Audio Network. Back with more in just a moment. Larry Kudlow. From Wall Street to the White House, this is The Larry Kudlow Show. And welcome back to Larry Kudlow Show. This is Joe Concha in for Mr. Kudlow on the Red Apple Audio Network. Not sure you heard, but the All-Star Game for Major League Baseball will be coming back to Atlanta in 2025. Wow. You may remember, Atlanta was awarded the 2021 All-Star Game, and then Major League Baseball moved it just a couple of months beforehand because they said that new voting laws that were passed in the Peach State were basically exactly what Joe Biden was describing him as. Jim Crow, 2.0. Minorities were going to be suppressed. People were going to die of thirst and hunger while waiting online to vote in places like Atlanta. So Major League Baseball, without doing even a hint of research on the topic, decides to move the All-Star Game out of Atlanta, which has a pretty high minority population, and many of them own businesses, moved it out of there, and went to Lily White, Denver, Colorado. And they got such backlash on that, most of all from me, because it just drove me insane to see Major League Baseball, who, you know what? People want escapism when they watch sports, all right? They want to turn on a game and forget about the world for a while. I did it for three hours happily last night with the, I'm sorry, it was Thursday night, with the Ravens and the Bengals. I don't even like either of the teams, but you know what? After a hard day and the kids are in bed and my wife's already asleep, I'm watching that game in its entirety because I'm just not thinking about anything anymore. And given how the world has gone in the past six weeks after October 7th, you know what? That's that's what I want. And Major League Baseball screwed the pooch, and basically almost all professional sports have screwed the pooch by injecting themselves into these controversies. And whenever they do, every time it's on the side of the blue team, on the side of Democrats. So they move the All-Star game, and $100 million is lost to local businesses as a result from all the tourism that didn't come into the town. Now, Thankfully, there was karma that year because guess who won the World Series? The Atlanta Braves. First time since, I don't know, 1995. So they ended up getting a lot of that money back because of the World Series, even though a lot of people don't travel to the World Series the way they would an All-Star game. Uh, so they didn't get it all back. But the point is, what was the result of the Georgia law that was changed by Republicans, streamlined more to make voting just more sensible and sane? For example, if you want to vote three weeks before Election Day at 4 o'clock in the morning, there wasn't a drive through for you to go to to cast your vote because that's what you're thinking about at 4 o'clock in the morning in October, three weeks before an election. You're like, you know what? I can't sleep. I think I'll go vote now. It's utterly ridiculous, by the way. Voting is one of the easiest things we do in this country. It really is. If you could go to a store and buy milk, I'm pretty sure you can go and vote. You go to the store, sometimes you have to wait in line. Boo-hoo. You go, go to vote, sometimes you got to wait in line, boo-hoo. If there's long lines, then fine. Take all these billions upon billions of dollars that we're spending on God knows what, like Ukraine, for example, where we don't know where the money is going, 
and just build more voting centers or just make them mobile. You, you, you could get like these vans. Remember, you used to have the bookmobile when we were growing up? Uh, I always had this bookmobile that came every Tuesday. It came three blocks from my house, and I ran up to this thing. I thought it was the coolest thing ever. I could walk into a van and get a book. I know. I'm a dork. But hey, look, I'm on the radio now. Ha! All right? National television. So <laughs> who's the dork? All right? Fox News, leading columnist for The Messenger, best-selling author. I'm glad I read. The point is that you could have these mobile voting centers just up and about so you identify where all the places are where there's long lines to vote and just give more people more options so the lines are down. And this whole thing like, oh, you can't, they're, they're saying you can't bring water out to people while they're waiting in line to vote. It's November. I mean, where are we exactly? Is it hot anywhere in November? Maybe Florida, I guess? Kinda? Come on with this. Oh, you can't bring, you can't bring food out to voters. Maybe you can eat before you go. I don't know. It's so stupid. And here's the thing. After all the votes were cast, after this vote, voting uh, was streamlined, all right, after this happened, guess what? They broke voting records in Georgia. They doubled almost voting in Georgia. They blew it out of the water. Not one person came forward and said, I couldn't vote because I couldn't get to a polling place. I didn't have access. I was too thirsty and I had to go home. All these things. It's such BS. And we know what it means. We saw what Democrats tr tried to do. And you could thank Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema in the Senate for blocking this. They wanted to federalize voting. In other words, it's not done on a state-by-state -state basis in terms of what they feel is right. It's going to be streamlined across the board. You're going to have early voting, you know, 20 weeks out. I'm exaggerating, but too many weeks out. The simple solution and I'm, I'm a common sense person. People say, oh, you're a conservative. I go, no, 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 I'm, I'm a common sense. If that means I'm conservative, okay, I guess. You should have voting. Make it either a holiday where people are off from work and they could vote. You vote that day. And paper ballots. Enough of these machines. Because all I know is after the 2016 election, two-thirds of Democrats felt that the Russians actually hacked our voting machines, changed votes, and installed Donald Trump into the White House. That's what Democrats think. And again, no one talks about that because after 2020, then Republicans, conservatives, about two thirds, even more, believe that that election was rigged and Joe Biden was installed into the White House. In other words, whoever loses is going to say that the machines were hacked by X, Y, Z, and this person actually didn't win. If you go back to paper ballots, right, quadruple the number of people that work at voting places, just pay the money. It's worth it to take out all the ambiguity. One holiday, you vote one day. If you are a veteran or you have some sort of medical ailment that doesn't allow you to get to a voting place, fine. Then you can mail in. But those are the only options. Those are the only alternatives. What am I trying to say here? Those are the only exceptions. Thank you. It's early. So that's, I think, it only makes sense. And now Major League Baseball saying, sorry, we want to do over. We'll be back in 2025. What's changed exactly? Nothing's changed. They know they screwed up. And that's where we are at this point in this country, where you have leagues like the NBA. You embraced Black Lives Friggin' Matter. Good for you. You know what Black Lives Matter did after October 7th? The Chicago Bureau, anyway, which was one of their, 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 their biggest bureaus, as far as support and donations, they put up a picture of a paraglider saying, I stand with Palestine. Paragliders, of course, are the ones that flew into that music festival and slaughtered everybody. It, it, hundreds of people killed. That's what Black Lives Matter stood for. Palestine. Paragliders. Great. Great job, everybody. And, and, and then you have NBA having it all over their, their courts. Black Lives Matter. How about All Lives Matter? 
How's that sound? I, I'm pretty sure that all men were created equal, right? I'm absolutely sure that Martin Luther King said not to judge somebody by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I believe he did say that during a famous speech once, right? So that's where we are. We're, we're, these sports leagues just don't get it. They continue not to get it. And every sports league, by the way, should be speaking out and saying, oh, by the way, we don't want biological men competing against biological women. That would be a good start, right? And don't worry about what Megan Rapino has to say about the topic. It's, it's very basic. You don't allow steroids in sports because it gives an unfair chemical advantage. You don't allow men who have certain chromosomes that give them a, an advantage in these situations. And yet, still, everybody's quiet about it because they're afraid they're going to be called transphobic. It's an absolute joke. Anyway, this is Joe Concha in for Larry Kudlow. It is the Red Apple Audio Network. Back with more in just a moment. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. We're here on Veterans Day. God bless our veterans. And let me just say, Red Apple Audio Network listeners, please support veterans and their families this Veterans Day by donating to the Tunnel to Towers Foundation. All you have to do is go to wabcradio.com slash T2T to donate. The Tunnel to Towers Foundation do all they can to support the veterans of our great country. Please show your support for them this Veterans Day and go to wabcradio.com slash T2T and please donate. All right. Important day, Veterans Day. Anyway, we're going to do some stock market work on Veterans Day. We've got Stephanie Link, Chief Investment Strategist of Hightower Advisors and Head of Investment Solutions, and Nancy Tengler, CEO and Chief Investment Officer of Laffer Tengler Investments. So, ladies, night out. Thank you very much. Appreciate it, kids. Nice week, uh, kind of good day yesterday, almost up 400 points on the Dow. Weekly gain of 222. Uh, Jay Powell, when he was not cussing out uh, climate activists, closed the effing door. I love that. It's one of his best things in all his term. <laughs> all prices soft. Short-term rates way up. Powell issued a warning. I think we're going to see big economics slow down. The curve is still inverted. All these things floating around. Stephanie Link, I begin with you, master strategist and investor that you are. What's going on out there? Well, first and foremost, we always worry about things out there, right? I mean, the market always climbs a wall of worry. And I have always said that I worry when I don't worry, because that means I'm complacent. So there are a lot of concerns out there, as you mentioned. And last week, yes, we ended on a high note. We, we, we consolidated a bit because we actually rallied 6% from the lows. And that was tied to interest rates pulling back, right? And interest rates pulled back because inflation has, I think, peaked. And it looks like it has peaked. If you look at CPI, PCE, look at unit labor costs, look at productivity, one of your favorite metrics, Larry, all of these things point to we are making progress. We're not where the Fed wants it to be. But I think actually on the margin, they are less hawkish because they see inflation is coming down. At the same time, the economy is, is, has held in, and that's tied directly to jobs. I look at initial claims, not non-farm payrolls, but I look at initial claims, and the four-week moving average is at 210000 
Recessionary periods, that number gets to 375,000. So we're not in a, a recession like people thought we would be at the beginning of this year. We're hanging in there. The stimulus continues to provide momentum, particularly on the industrial infrastructure side of things. If inflation has peaked and rates have peaked, that's actually pretty good for stocks. Now, I'm just thinking between now and the end of the year, we can rally based on what I just said, especially since earnings are better. 2024, I think it's going to be harder. Harder. Yeah, it's always harder. Yeah. Uh, Short-term rates went up quite a bit. <clears throat> 22 basis points on the two-year note, back to 506. The T-bill is 540. The 10-year is 465. That's... Uh, my math is decent, 75 basis point inversion, Nancy Tangler. Inverted yield curves generally lead recessions by about a year. We're going to have a recession next year, Nancy Tangler? Mm. Well, it's good to be on with you and Stephanie, Larry, and thanks for your opening. It was um, The Veterans Day opening was excellent. Um, I wrote a piece last, last week, or right after the last time I was on, um, that this market is analogous in my view to the 1990s when I actually was alive and managing money. Uh, and what we had was a situation where we had higher rates. They um, averaged between 5 and 8% during the decade. We had higher inflation than, than the Fed's target. We were above 3% for most of the decade. And we had uh, war and recession, and yet the markets managed to turn in pretty re remarkable results with the S&P and Dow, both well above 400% for the decade and the NASDAQ above 800. So I had written at the beginning of this year that I thought we, that investors were way too pessimistic about <laughs> stocks, that that has been mostly right. But then previous to that, in May, we, we argued that we didn't think we'd see a recession um, in May of 2022, sorry, and that has proven to be correct. Next year is a different story, though. What I heard during earnings season, and I would love to know what Stephanie thinks, um, was that companies were actually in, particularly in technology where we're overweighted, but they were raising uh, guidance and also margins. M m more than a majority of S&P companies actually saw their margins expand. Could be the great Trump tax cuts, uh, corporate tax cuts. I yeah. don't know, but yeah. um, I, I think that um, the, the odds of a recession are certainly increasing, but I'm sort of in the, you know, Ed Yardani rolling recession. We'll see. Um, we, we are going to see slowing uh, economic growth, but I don't know that we get all the way into a recession. Nancy, you got two kids in the military. I have one. Thank you so one. much for remembering that. Yeah, he's. Right. Uh, but I thought you had uh, didn't. I thought you had two kids. Went to Naval Academy. Just one. Yeah. Oh, just the other one, one um, played, decided not to play basketball there, and she went somewhere else. So, How, um, How's your boy doing? Where is he? He's in Jack's. He's waiting for his next promotion um, mm. that's obviously stalled in. He, he would be going to work for someone who needs to be promoted. Um, so, mm. you know, it's it, the implications of, of all of that. Never easy. Politics are messy, but yeah. there's a lot of lives on hold, for, certainly in the military. But we thank him for his service. We thank him for his thank service. You. Thank you. On Veterans Day. So, Stephanie, uh, all right, so tech looks a little better. You know what's interesting here? It just occurs to me. You've got this uh, terrible war in Israel, 
I mean, the IDFs, they're going to they're gonna mop up. They're not going to listen to Biden and Blinken, and they're just going to mop up, and they're going to annihilate Hamas, which is a setback for Iran. But what hasn't happened, the dog that didn't bark, Stephanie, was mm. the, um, you know, Arab oil embargo, $150 oil. Never happened. In fact, it's interesting to me, Steph, uh, both crude and the world wholesale markets, you know, Brent crude, but also retail gasoline's coming down. I think that's interesting. I don't know what it means exactly, but it may mean, uh, you know, big drop off in demand. It could be. It could also be uh, just excess supplies that we're not buying uh, the SPR that like we should be buying. We should never have actually released it to begin with. <clears throat> Excuse me. But I would say that on the flip side, I'll, I'll just turn it positively because, you know, that's the way I kind of roll. Um, gasoline is down 40 cents in the past year. Yeah. And that equates to $54 billion in potential additional consumption by the consumer. And so for me, I go back to the consumer. They have jobs. They have wages. I know wages have come down, but they're still pretty elevated. Now you have a tailwind of gasoline. Remember not too long ago, a couple of weeks ago, retail sales came in better than expected. I think the consumer is okay. Um, and that's a big part of our economy, a 70% of GDP. Uh, and I, I, have, I will tell you, in, in my 32 years in this business, I, I, I've never been right when I have bet against the consumer, the U.S. consumer. We are a nation of spenders, whether we have <clears throat> had cash, we have its savings, or we take on debt. And for now, they're hanging in there. And that leaves me pretty optimistic. And then again, as I mentioned earlier, along with manufacturing, you know, you look at the Atlanta Fed GDP tracker, Larry, and while we had 4.9% growth in the third quarter, everyone thought, oh, that's one off and we're going to be, you know, in maybe flat to up one. We're running up 2.1% now, and it's certainly early into the into the quarter. Um, just a quick comment on, uh, from, on, um, on Nancy's comments, which I totally agree with on earnings. They have actually held in remarkably well. The revisions are going higher. You, ta you taught us all. A long, long time ago, that that stocks follow profit on the yeah. way up and on the way down, and numbers are going higher. Eighty-two percent of companies have beat earnings, and yeah. Uh, again, yeah, yeah, margins have stayed elevated, and that's also not only tax cuts. I would say it's also because we are we are lean and mean, and we reorganize and restructure very quickly when we need to, and so Listen. that's why that's why the the U.S. market gets a higher multiple than any other country in the world. Profits are the mother's yeah. milk of stocks. And I agree with your point. <laughs> you're, you're both right. Profits are the mother's milk of stocks and the lifeblood of the economy. I, I agree. I mean, objectively speaking, I think the key point was how many years? 32 years? That was really yeah. the key point. She's a babe. She's a young babe. Do you know, uh, I started at the Federal Reserve Bank of New York 50 plus years ago. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can't even do the arithmetic. 1973, okay? I left Princeton grad school and I went to the New York Fed and they stuck me in open market operations. I didn't know what I was doing. <laughs> uh, but you know, uh, Nancy, it is interesting uh, on the profit side. I mean, look, uh, one of the inputs to corporate uh, operations is uh, energy. And 79% uh, of our energy still comes from fossil fuels. 
and the price of fossil fuels is easing down. It is easing down. Despite uh, Dingbat Biden's policies, uh, it's easing down. I mean, we're producing just less than 13 uh, million barrels a day. We should be at 15, yeah. but we're, we're at, I think the number, the last number I saw was 12.8, 12.9. Um, but uh, I think that's, a, I think Stephanie's right. I think it's right for consumers uh, but I think it's right for businesses, right? Businesses need power. And mm -hmm. right now, yeah. you know, it's power is too high relative to three years ago, but at least it's easing back down. And I'm keeping right. an eye on that story because I think that's, um, you know, it's a positive. It's a positive. Mm -hmm. You know what else is super interesting? Um, I think Stephanie would agree with this, too. One of the things you learn in this business is who to listen to after you've been in it for her 32 years and my 40 uh, and I listen when Brian Reynolds um, publishes work, and he just did a piece on inventories. He did uh, estimated the combined inventories of all S and P 500 companies, and inventories are up dramatically, up 21 percent over three years ago to 78 and a half days. Asset inventory turnover has declined by a full point, and I think that is going to be the story that we hear in the fourth quarter and going forward, that that's going to put downward pressure on prices for the consumer uh, as well. I agree with Stephanie. And then don't forget net worth, because these um, these consumers have much higher net worth than they had pre-pandemic, and people do spend out of net worth, especially if they're working. And net debt worth. servicing levels are not super high either. They're much below the 80s and the great financial crisis. Well, net worth is about $150 trillion. I love that. Yeah. By the way, yeah. for the debt mongers out there, net worth, uh, debt in public hands is about $26, 27000000000000 trillion. So as a percentage of net worth, it's, you know, it's less than 25%, I think. So I don't get that excited about all this debt craziness and credit mm -hmm. card craziness. I mean, I, I don't think it's yeah. insane. I don't think it's insane. Um, let's take a break. Let's take a break. Now we can talk about Fed policy. We are talking to two of the best of the best, two old friends of mine, by the way, Stephanie Link, Chief Investment Strategist of Hightower Investors, Head of Investment Solutions, Nancy Tangler, CEO and Chief Investment Officer of Laffer Tangler Investments. And we thank her son for his service on Veterans Day. I'm Kudlow. We'll be right back. Larry Kudlow, we're talking stocks with uh, we've got uh, Stephanie Link. Wait a second. I've got to get all your titles in here. Stephanie Link, uh, Chief Investment Strategist of Hightower Advisors, Head of Investment Solutions, Nancy Tangler, CEO and CIO of Laffer Tangler Investments. I don't mean to belittle any of that because you're all working hard. Um, I had a thing on the TV show I wanted to share and get your take. You know, uh, you, you all are fairly constructive on the market outlook. Um, a new poll from Bankrate and YouGov shows that 50% of voters think their financial situation has gotten worse, only 21% improved and 26% unchanged. So people are rather pessimistic out there. And I do want to add that the Michigan Consumer, uh, Consumer Survey did fall again second straight month, and inflation fears did jump up again in that survey for the second straight month. Um, Nancy, what do you make of those kinds of numbers? People are, it's funny, there's a, there's a lot of pessimism out there. Now, some of this is political, they don't like Biden. They've given up on the guy, blah, blah, blah. 
But um, I don't know. Their financial situation is their financial situation, and they don't seem happy about it. Yeah, well, I think you nailed it, Larry. I think it's the Cudlow CPI, food and energy up six point six percent. Yeah, and that's what that's what people think about when they you know when they're living their lives. They go fill up even with gas prices coming in. Um, and, you know, food is still very expensive. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and you know, we, we talk about the changes in inflation, um, but, but that doesn't mean it goes away. You know, CPI is up, what, 18, 20 percent since, mm-hmm. since we went on this journey. So I, I do think, you know, I, it's been very disappointing um, to watch this Fed. I, I've been pretty vocal about it. Um, we get these talking points and then the market goes into a spin. So when that happens, I go back and look at the dot plot in September of 2021, where they were projecting rate increases on average of about 1% in 2023 and 2% in 2024. So I, I, I take comfort in the fact that they've been pretty much 100% wrong all the way through. And I mm-hmm. use that as an opportunity um, to add to holdings that I want to own in the portfolio. <laughs> Just put a minus sign in front of it. But it is interesting. I mean, so yearly inflation has come down, but prices are still up. Key prices. I'm thinking, you're right, groceries Mm -hmm. and even gasoline. Now, gasoline is $3.40, but almost three years ago, it was close to $2.25. So people know that. Um, Grocery prices are up, uh, you're right, about 20%. And of course, you do have the mortgage rates have eased slightly below eight, but Stephanie Link, mortgage rates have gone up quite a bit. Now you can say, compared to the 80s and 90s, mortgage rates are cheap, but you know, compared to the last 15 years with the zero interest rate policy, mortgage rates have suddenly gotten very expensive. That's what people do feel, and I think that's um, a problem. Well, it is in the housing market. You you're seeing kind of the the two different scenarios play out. On the one hand, new new home sales are up 32 percent year over year, uh, and that is a function of the fact that we have a very limited supply. We're five million homes short in this country, and we've got five million millennials that are just starting to to buy new homes or their first home. On a, on the flip side, existing home sales they've actually been down 16 of the last 18 months, right. and that's not surprising given mortgage rates. 92 percent of the people that own a home have a mortgage under five percent in this country. Why would you ever sell your home with a three, four, five mortgage and go for a seven or eight? Of course, that makes all the sense in the world, and that's why interest rates. Watching the the the, the interest rate picture is so important. I, I will say. In the 50 basis points that we've seen in contraction in the 30-year yield in the last month or so, mortgage applications actually went up. And so you can see the direct connection. At the moment, I don't know. America's going to survive. How about that? America (laughs) is going to survive on Veterans Day. that's right. The two of you (laughs) are just fabulous, fabulous people. Stephanie Link, thank you ever so much. Nancy Tengler, thank you ever so much. God bless your son. Folks, I'm Kudlow. We're going to take a break. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. We're going to welcome to the show your friend, Ambassador Robert O'Brien, former National Security Advisor in the Trump administration, currently Chairman of American Global Strategies. Robert, thank you for doing this, my friend. Terrific stuff. I want to, you know, uh, the news out of the Middle East is basically good. The IDF is mopping up Hamas. 
Uh, they're doing a good job. All our military analysts, I mean, they may be ahead of schedule. And I just had this combined thought, first of all, uh, IDF crushes Hamas. That's a defeat for Iran and will be seen as such. But on the other hand, Robert, I'm still seeing all this hand-wringing from Anthony Blinken and Joe Biden. Blinken was in India. You know, he, he wants a three-day ceasefire and blaming Israel for civilian casualties and all this stuff. Israel's actually doing a pretty good precision job. But, I mean, it's so important to let the momentum continue. I mean, Israel is really making great strides more rapidly. And why in world's name do we have to have this constant hand-wringing, Robert O'Brien? Well, it makes you think about the Hillary, Hillary Clinton days as the good old days when she was Secretary of State. At least she had Israel's back. And uh, I, I think what's happening, I think Tony Blinken's initial instincts were right to support Israel, to do what it had to do to eliminate the threat on its borders. I mean, we've got the situation where we've got psycho serial killers. These aren't just terrorists. They're, they're mass murderers that are living next door to them. I mean, think if you were in a neighborhood and John Wayne Gacy and Ted Bundy and Charles Manson all live in the house next door to you and we're killing your kids. And people said, well, you know, don't, don't, go, don't go shoot them. Uh, just build a bigger wall or give them some food or, or fuel and they'll feel better about things. Maybe they won't kill your kids. I mean, that, that's what Israel's dealing with on a massive scale. And they're doing a great job, as you pointed out. The IDF is a very efficient force. You know, they, they didn't rush in. Hamas thought that they would rush in and get caught in traps. And uh, the Israelis took their time. They planned the operation very well. And they're you know, limiting civilian damages, the collateral damage and civilian deaths. And, and they're going to root these guys out. And that's going to be a big defeat for Iran. But, you know, the, the Democrat Party, as we both know, Larry, has a, a left wing that's sort of anti-Semitic and anti-American. Gene Kirkcrash would call it the Blame America First crowd but back in the Reagan years. We, you know, we remember mm -hmm. Gene. And, and these are the Blame America First, Blame Israel First crowd. They support the terrorists. They support Hamas. And uh, unfortunately, they're putting a lot of pressure on Blinken and, and Biden. You know, it, it would be so much better if Biden and Blinken would be congratulating Israel. I mean, you know, the precision bombing stuff uh, and Israel had already put up, um, you know, a couple hours a day to get civilian hostages out, to get, uh, you know, Palestinian civilians out. There were pictures in the papers, you know, of Israel forces accompanying Palestinian civilians with white flags to get them out. They've done that. Uh, the numbers here, I mean, look, war is hell and there are costs, but uh, it's a just war. But a lot of analysts are saying how precise Israel has been. I mean, I, I'd love to see them s congratulate Israel, say something nice about them. I haven't heard anything well, I, nice about them since the first couple of days. And you're right. And keep in mind what happened. There's no moral equivalency here between Israel and Hamas. It's, it's a false equivalency right. being drawn by the left, by these, these radicals. Hamas came in and targeted civilians. They, they tried to kill men, women, children, and then did kill 1,400 men, women, and children, babies, decapitated, families burned alive, wives raped in front of their husbands, and the husbands being killed afterwards. I mean, the most shocking, it, it was a horror show. Now, Israel has not done that in Gaza. In fact, 
Israel has tried to try to kill the Hamas terrorists that, that perpetrated the attack to bring to justice these killers. And what have the killers done? They've used their own people, their own their own civilians, as human shields. And and their goal, mm. it's the first time in history that our army is used. Uh, usually, armies are are there to protect the civilian population. This is the first time in human history that an army is using the civilian population to protect itself and drive up the death. Mm of Palestinian civilians to, to incur sympathy around the world for their cause. I mean, it, it's, it's outrageous. He's, every person who dies in Gaza, their, their blood is on the head of Hamas, not on the head of Israel. The Israelis are dropping, you know, dumb bombs on the, the top of buildings to let people know that the buildings can be targeted and give them time to get out. It's dropping leaflets mm. to tell the civilians where they're going to attack next. I mean, we don't do that. No, no army in the world does what Israel does to protect human life, because that's a Judeo-Christian value, and it's a Judeo value, value of Judaism that uh, the Israelis practice, because they want to limit human suffering, they want to limit civilian casualties, and yet the, the far left claims they're, they're involved in genocide. I mean, it's just a, it's a sickness, it's, it's anti-Semitic, it's a, it's a real terrible thing that we're seeing. Yeah, well said, Robert O'Brien, well said. Um, Wall Street Journal editorial today, Iran is not impressed by America's airstrikes. You know, there's this business, they've hit us 50 times, Iran and their proxies, and we've just had a couple of pinpricks, and I don't know why, and I talked to Keen about this uh, on the show uh, yesterday or Thursday, whenever. You know, why don't we hit back? Why don't we hit back harder, Robert O'Brien? Look, there's been a philosophy with the, this administration, and it goes back to the Obama administration where President Biden served as vice president, where all his diplomats served, Lincoln and Sullivan, all these guys served in the Obama administration. They really believe that the key to Middle East peace is Iran. And they, they believe they can change Iran if they, if they just give the Iranians enough money, enough respect, show enough restraint, that the Iranians will, will go from being these theocratic killers who you know, hang gays and lesbians from, from cranes and throw them off buildings and, and slaughter women who don't want to wear hijabs. I mean, for a, for a group that in the White House that claims he's so pro-women and pro-LGBT, they, they, they just want to make friends with the most anti-women, anti-LGBT regime in the world. That it, it's also anti-Semitic, hates Israel and hates America. But they, they think that if they reach, as President Obama said, if they reach out their hand, Iran will unclench their fist and uh, give them $6 billion in ransom here, $70 billion in sanctions relief there, $150 billion, and they'll, they'll take it and build a middle class in Iran. The Iranians that they're friends with here, the, who are great Americans and, and came over after the Shah fell, are not the same Iranians who are in, in charge of you know, the, the government, the regime in Tehran. And, and they just need to learn that Iran's not that into us. They're going to continue to kill us, kill our soldiers, injure them, and try and drive us out of the Middle East, and then try and take over the entire Middle East. There's, there's no negotiating. There's no compromise with the, with the Iranian regime. It's brutal. It's thuggish. And we uh, want to conquer the Middle East and, and kick us out. And, and until the Biden administration understands that, we're not going to have any change in policy. But even today, even after the Hamas attacks, even after the attacks on our, our soldiers, sailors, airmen, Marines in the region, they're, they're still reaching out, trying to trying to somehow reach an accord with the Ayatollahs and the Mullahs. And it's not going to happen. They're just not that into us, Larry. Yeah, they're just not that into us. You're absolutely right. Um, you know. You tr the Trump national security team took out Soleimani, told them all you had their cell phone numbers. I mean, Iran didn't strike back because they were broke. But that's the other point. 
the the billions keep pouring in. There's the sanctions are still at this point. Nothing has happened. No ships have been interdicted or impounded. They're still selling uh, three and a half million some odd barrels of oil a day. Most of it going to China. They've still run up their foreign exchange reserves. We've done nothing to punish Iran during this period. Uh, Iran's gotten rich, Larry. When we left office in a large part because of your efforts uh, and those of the Treasury, we, Iran had $4 billion in foreign currency reserves. They could barely operate their economy. Today, they have $70 billion in foreign reserves. They're, they're rich. Iran's gotten rich. In three years, it's become a very rich terrorist country. And what do they do with the money? They, they give it to the Houthis in Yemen to launch missiles in Saudi Arabia and the UAE and, and Israel, our friends. They give it to Khatib Hezbollah in Iraq to kill American soldiers and injure them. They give it to Hamas to slaughter Jews. They give it to Syria and Bashar al-Assad's regime. They develop nuclear weapons. They develop ballistic missile programs. None of this money that they're getting is going to the Iranian middle class to help the people of Iran. And and this has all happened in, in, in just three years. And so it's it's been an abject failure. And uh, it's, it's, it's got to stop. We've got to go back to Easter strength. We've got to stop. We've got to put maximum pressure back on the Iranians. Or, or they're just going to continue this malign activity. You think they're talking right now? Keen, Keen mentioned this on the show. He's, I mean, he was uh, up in arms about it the way you are. Um, and Keynes said, well, he didn't know if they were talking to Iran. Um, I don't see any evidence that they're talking to Iran. I mean, Blinken is, you know, flying all over the world doing his best imitation of Henry Kissinger's shuttle diplomacy. But there's no evidence. There's no discussion. Qatar, yes. But Iran, I mean, you think there are conversations going on between the United States well, and Iran right now? Yeah, the, the good news is Rob Malley, who is the biggest appeaser of Iran, and yeah. is such an appeaser he'd make you know Neville Chamberlain blush, uh, <laughs> is out of, out of office. So that's good news. But all of his people are still there, mm. and they've been talking to Iran. They talked to Iran when when they were out of office. When President Trump was there, we found out that John Kerry and others were talking to Iran. Mm. John Kerry is close to the Iranians. Uh, you know, the, the, the whole administration has had this. Not only have they talked to Iran, they begged Iran. They, they get on bended knees to the Iranians and beg them to come to talks and, and 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 engage in negotiations. They pay them to engage in negotiations. They they pay them massive ransom payments for hostages. So it wouldn't surprise me at all if in Switzerland or in Qatar they're talking to the Iranians. But if they're not talking directly to the Iranians, they're telling the Swiss and they're telling the, the Qataris to please have the Iranians come back to the table. I mean, it's this unrequited love that I don't understand with the Democrats. They've got this this fixation and fascination with Iran and then just believe they can change them. And as we know, you know, you can't change people. And uh, mm. at least you can't change the Iranians. And this, this, it, it, it actually makes us look pathetic and weak. The Iranians sense that, and they continue to, to target our soldiers. They continue to target Israel. And they continue to target our allies in the Gulf. And until we stand up to them, that, that activity is not going to change. I mean, uh you know the political scientist Walter Reed Russell, uh, Walter Reed Russell, uh, who writes for the Wall Street Journal some great columns. I mean, he he said Iran is unappeasable. They're unappeasable. You can't buy them. They don't. You know, money doesn't mean anything. They just use it for more terrorist war. Uh, deterrence is what's necessary. And yet, where's the deterrence? Well, there's, there's zero deterrence. The only deterrence we got is the Israelis, and this goes back to the, the top of your questioning, Larry. The Israelis are doing a great job. They're going to take out Hamas. Yeah. Iran has has two big 
two big points of leverage against Israel, Hamas and Hezbollah. And they, they overplayed their hand. They never thought the Israelis would show the resolve that they had. To get, they, the Iranians totally misjudged the judicial protests in, in Israel and thought that Israel was divided and wouldn't rally and wouldn't be able to take out Hamas. The Israelis are going to take out Hamas root and branch, which they've shown, and they're going to get, get it done very quickly. Hamas is going to be totally neutralized. And then it, it's no surprise that Hezbollah is now saying, hey, wait a minute. You know, we're not doing anything. We're not. We're not dictated to by Iran. We're not going to. We're not going right. to get to war with Israel because right. they don't want. The, they don't want the same thing to happen to them up in Lebanon that's happening in Hamas right now. And, oh, great and point. Gaza. So great they, point. So the, the deterrence that we're seeing is coming from Israel, not from the U.S., which is sad. Yes. And uh, the U.S. The U.S. ought to tell the Iranians that they they bomb one more time if their proxies bomb one of our bases or kill one of our soldiers or contractors in the region. They're going to pay a heavy price. That's the only thing the Iranians understand. The reason they can't be appeased by is they've got a messianic ideology. They want to usher in the return of the 12th Mahdi. That's that's their goal. Mm. It's the equivalent of us, those of us who are Christian who want the Jesus Christ to return to the earth. They mm. they think that if they create chaos in the Middle East, if they export their Shia messianic ideology throughout the region and throughout the world, they can usher in the return of the 12th Mahdi. It's very difficult to negotiate with with people that have that view. These mm. aren't, you know, they're not rational human beings. They're, mm. you know, they're they're, they're driven Indeed. by a religious fervor that can't be a, a, appeased. And so, until the Biden administration and their diplomats understand that, we're not going to be, you know, we're, we're not going to have any success in the region. What they do understand is they understand maximum pressure, and they mm. understand that the United States of America isn't going to put up with our soldiers being killed. And we'll take we won't bomb an abandoned ammo dump that they, they, they laughed about. Instead, they'll understand that. Uh, Let's take a break. Take the kind Let's... of action the Trump administration took, and, and Let's you know, take they, a break. They, they... Let's, let's take a quick break. We, I need you for a couple more minutes on the other side of the break. Folks, Ambassador Robert O'Brien, former National Security Advisor during the Trump administration. He's now chairman of American Global Strategies. We need him back in office to to solve these problems. I'm Kudlow. We'll take a quick break and come back. Might even ask him a question about these meetings coming up with China. Oh my God, Biden and Xi, China. What's going to happen there? I'm Kudlow. We'll be right back. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow on Veterans Day. We are talking to Ambassador Robert O'Brien, former National Security Advisor in the Trump administration, now Chairman of American Global Strategies. Robert, um, it's a scary thought at this point in time, but President Biden will be meeting with China President Xi this coming week, I don't know, Wednesday, Thursday in San Francisco. And um, I just kind of wonder if Taiwan's going to come up. I don't know. Biden is so afraid to pick a fight on any subject. China, by the way, financing Iran and this war by their oil purchases. I don't know whether Biden will mention that, like interdict ships or impound ships. And then there's the question of, is the United States strong enough? Do we have a strong enough Navy? I know that's a subject that interests you. Can you give us a little bit of a look-see at these uh, China-U.S. talks? Well, what worries me is that we're going to go back to the appeasement toolkit that uh, the Biden administration loves. We tried to appease the Taliban and it ended up in a catastrophic withdrawal from Afghanistan. We tried to appease Putin. We gave him Nord Stream 2. We shut down our own Keystone Pipeline and gave Putin Nord Stream 2. Told him if he just made a minor incursion into Ukraine, that would be okay. 
And what did we get? We got a war in Ukraine. We tried to appease Iran, paid them $6 billion for hostages. And within you know three weeks of that, uh, 200 Israeli and American hostages were, were taken by Hamas, and Israel was invaded. And now we've got China watching this thing saying, hey, wait a minute, Russia invaded Ukraine, no consequences economically. You, you and I called for the sanction of the Russian Federation Central Bank before the invasion mm. as it to try to deter the Russians. Mm. The, the administration didn't do it. They still haven't done it, even with the whole war raging in Ukraine. The Chinese flooded a spy balloon across the entire country, stopped and lingered over our nuclear sites, our ICBM silos, our Air Force bases, our submarine pens in Georgia, took pictures, got all the intelligence they wanted. And what did we do? We sent four cabinet secretaries. And so now in the run-up to this meeting with, with President Biden, Gavin Newsom, who may take over for Biden, we don't know, but uh, he certainly wants to, the governor of California, went to China and thought it was acted like it was 19 and, you know, 99 and, uh, hmm. and uh, partied with Xi and told him how you know, we needed to get along with China and everything was great between the two countries and didn't bring up the Uyghurs, didn't bring up the democracy protesters in Hong Kong, didn't bring up the threats to Taiwan, uh, didn't bring up Tibet and the Dalai Lama and the genocide there. And uh, and now we've got Biden going in on the heels of his cabinet secretaries going to Beijing and making pilgrimages. We saw your friend Janet Yellen nodding <laughs> like a bobblehead to, to Xi when she met him. You know, I think she bowed to him six six times. And he, 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 he isn't going to get that from his Communist Party guys who wanted promotions. And, uh, you know, so, so the, the tendency of this administration is total appeasement. And so I worry going into the APEC summit in San Francisco and the, the bilateral meetings on the sidelines of that with Xi that you know, Biden's going to go back to the appeasement handbook. And we know what mm. appeasement leads to. It leads to it's, it's temporarily popular. It gives you some temporary relief. But as Churchill said, that the consequences travel with you long down the road. And the, and the cup that you eventually have to drink is much more bitter than the one you'd have to face if you just, mm. just stood tall and stood your ground against these authoritarians and dictators. Um, two things on this, that was a good rundown, but two things. One is this point that China is buying Iranian oil, uh, and thereby financing the terrorist war. I mean, China's hands are very dirty here. We haven't done a bloody thing about it. We've never, our, you know, Biden administration, diplomats, Blinken, uh, Blinken floating now, he was in India. South Korea, and then say a word about that. Not a single word about that. Uh, and the other thing, Robert, is uh, military preparedness uh, and the issue of what would we do? Are we in any posture to uh, defend, you know, I mean, the sea lanes uh, throughout that area are so important to world commerce. Do we have the Navy to do that? Well, your first question is not just the, the Iranian oil sales to China that are minute, financing one the, minute left. The, the, the Iran war, it's the Iranian, it's, it's the Chinese purchases of the Russian oil. It's keeping mm, Russia yes. afloat. China, yes. China is literally keeping Russia afloat in the fight against Ukraine and keeping Iran afloat in the fight against the U.S. and Israel. And and they are going after the U.S. So the Chinese have very dirty hands here. They're, they're supporting them. And it, and it ties into your question about Taiwan because if, if they can tie up enough U.S. military forces, and we've got two carrier groups now in the Middle East, that leaves things wide open for, for Xi to take Taiwan. Mm. So we've got to be very careful and watch, keep an eye on what's happening. And we, we don't have the military we need. We don't have the Navy we need to search the Chinese. And 
Mm-hmm. He's watching us and he's, he's occupying us in other areas. And I, I'm very concerned about Taiwan. All right. Robert O'Brien, thank you ever so much. Former National Security Advisor for Trump, American Global Strategies. I'm Kudlow.